You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today I have with me Arthur Asraf. He's currently an examination fellow at All Souls College at Oxford, and he's about to take up a position as university lecturer in French history at Cambridge University. So welcome to the podcast, Arthur. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the program. So today's podcast is part of our History of Science series, and on this series, we often look at the adoption of new technologies of communication whether that is the printing press or kind of new ways of using manuscripts. Uh, But we often gloss over the question of the social and political communities that form around these technologies. So it might seem uh, that as technology connects more and more people, the political community in general likewise expands. Um, And we, you know, we believe we see this when we're looking at technologies Uh, like writing itself, or the printed book, or even the internet today. But today we're really going to focus, in a sense, on the opposite phenomenon. We're going to look at the frictions created by growing connectivity, and we're going to do so by talking about new venues and technologies of the news in colonial Algeria. Specifically, we are going to look at the telegraph, and we're going to examine new political imaginations of Islam that resulted both on the part of the native Algerians and French colonial officials. Let's start with this question. You focus in your research on one of the places you look at is the telegraph. You know, why the telegraph and what what is its history in Algeria? I think the telegraph is really interesting because it's one of the more iconic uh, technologies of modernity, one of the ones Mm -hmm. that defines the modern era, along with a few others like the railway. When people start experimenting with with telegraphy in in the mid-19th century, there really is a huge amount of excitement about the fact that it's going to annihilate time and space, that Mm -hmm. suddenly everything is faster, that... Uh, thought can be dematerialized. So it really creates a very intense moment around this. Now, this has been studied in a number of of different contexts uh, in Europe, in the United States, in a lot of places. Right. What's specific, I think, about the Algerian story um, is obviously it's a colonial context and it's a particularly extreme one. So what happens in Algeria is the telegraph comes uh, with the French army uh, as part of the conquest. And the the army literally takes uh, the telegraph cable with it as it progresses through Algerian territory. So it is seen as a particularly uh, military technology. Usually in cases of insurrection, people cut the telegraph cables as the first sign that that, uh, they're resisting authority because it interrupts communications. And then the telegraph uh, very quickly comes to perform a role of connecting different pockets of European settlement Mm. throughout Algeria. So the the settlement is uh, very diffuse. Uh, You never get a a settler majority in Algeria like you do in some other contexts. So the telegraph is really crucial to uh, allowing both the state government and the settlers to uh, remain in contact with each other across a very vast territory, which is often very poorly known. Mm. 
I mean, so one of the things being sent across uh, the telegraph is communication between, let's say, the metropole and the and these settlements. I mean, how else is it being used? What else is moving around on it? So originally, the telegraph network only connects within Algeria. Mm. Um, uh, so starting from from the 1850s and then uh, up to the to 1870. The French develop a very extensive telegraph network, which also extends to Tunisia, but it only really is connecting different places in Algeria. Um, it's only in 1870 that they managed to create a direct cable across the sea that connects uh, Marseille to Algiers. Now, this is very important because before it would take 50 hours to send a message uh, from Marseille to Algiers by boat. Mm-hmm. Once you get a direct cable, it takes 10 minutes. Mm. Um, so that's huge uh, importance in order to really make Algeria part of metropolitan France, which is the, the, the political project. I mean, so what information is being sent along these telegraph lines? So originally, it's mainly military information about movement of troops, um, administrative dispatches. It's worth keeping in mind that uh, telegraphy is extremely expensive, particularly uh, the, the the submarine cables are very expensive. So people don't send that many private messages originally. Um, what does develop very quickly is a symbiotic relationship between the telegraph cable and news agencies. Mm. So the first uh, modern news agency, Avas, is created in Paris in the 1830s um, and develops slightly later in the 19th century a cartel with two other news agencies which are founded by people who used to work for Avas. Uh, so one of them is Reuters in London and the other one is Wolf in Berlin and these three companies together kind of split out world news as it is spread by wire dispatches. Mm. Um, so that becomes one of the main um, ways in which telegraph cables get developed uh, because it promises a steady stream of uh, information that will be paid for which is much uh, better for the companies, basically, as a business model. So I'm from the 21st century. I don't actually know that much about the telegraph, and I haven't sent any telegrams. So, I mean, I'd be interested just to kind of get a sense of the physical process of sending a telegraph. How did news actually move from place to place? You know, so we don't just imagine communication as this kind of dematerialized movement of information. So um, recent research on this suggests that one of the interesting things about the telegraph is that it makes all of the points on the network quite uniformly close to each other. So Mm. the most important thing is uh, being on the network. So whatever endpoint, whether you're in Shanghai or in Buenos Aires or in any of these places, it doesn't really matter so much as the fact that you're on the network. It's a technology that redistributes space because it brings all of those different endpoints of the network closer together, but then it separates them and makes them further apart from the hinterland um, where the telegraph does not reach. So that's very visible in Algeria because you see all of the different um, European settlements um, becoming increasingly connected to Europe. Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on the other hand, areas of high Muslim density, which tend to be in the mountains, um, are increasingly kind of pushed away from this. Okay, so you basically have two networks of information here, it seems. You have one of the settlers connected to France, and then you have a sort of unconnected world of news? I mean, what? how did Algerians, how did natives get information then? Uh, the So the Algerian majority population is obviously not unconnected. Um, they have, uh, they're very well informed according to different channels. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a crushingly illiterate population. So mm-hmm. the, the literacy rate is extremely low uh, for, for Algerians. Um, so the, the predominant means of information tend to be oral. 
Um, so this can take place in a number of spaces. Um, the most crucial tends to be the cafe. Um, there, there are separate cafes, usually in most cities for Muslims and Europeans. Um, so the so-called Café Mort, the Moorish cafes, are where Algerian men, it's a very gendered space, mm-hmm. uh, congregate to, uh, to share news and, and to share stories and to discuss uh, marketplaces. Sometimes you have uh, particular figures which sing news, um, mm. which are called Meddah, um, which are kind of poets who, mm-hmm. who sing news. Um, and you also have other forms, manuscripts, private letters for those who can right. read. Um, sometimes involving intermediaries. So one interesting thing that happens with the telegraph by the First World War is that Algerians who start going to France, who can't read, start mm-hmm. sending telegrams back home to inform their families. This involves going through a number of different people. Somebody in France has to transcribe your message uh, and send it to the telegram, and then when it arrives in Algeria, somebody in the village has to read it out for the other ones. Mm-hmm. And really, this is part of a broader process whereby um, the, the two n- networks are very uh, intermingled. Right. So they're not separate, um, but the connection between the two can only happen at very particular contact points and involve very particular kind of actors that are able to switch between those two modes. Mm -hmm. So one figure that we see that becomes very strategic is the one man in the village who can read French Mm -hmm. and who uh, will read the French newspaper out loud in the cafe. Mm. Um, And this creates a lot of excitement and it means that the news kind of spreads to whole different audiences and via different channels. Okay, so you have basically... I mean, what we're slowly sketching out here is this image of a colonial society uh, with different forms of circulating the news and at certain points, different networks. And at certain points, these networks connect the nodes and the people at those nodes, I mean, have in a sense a, both an intermediary function, but also have a lot of power as intermediaries. Absolutely, because whatever uh, interpretation or translation, for instance, they put of the news. So if they're suddenly reading the news uh, from the French newspaper into to, to the Air, Algerian dialect of Arabic or into various uh, dialects of Tamazight, mm-hmm. suddenly that version becomes very important. Um, there are different levels of this. So it might be that also somebody listens to something in a cafe, which is in a city usually, and then goes back to the countryside and Mm. that person might. So there's a whole chain and all of these people are are putting their own kind of spin on things. Right. So perhaps just to make this a bit more concrete, could you give us an example of one of these intermediaries? Sure. So actually um, it happens that we are in Crete. So this is a good uh, example. In 1897, there is a war between uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Greek state over the autonomy of Crete mm-hmm. um, and the Ottoman Empire uh, militarily defeats the Greek army. This news uh, arrives in Algeria and um, even in quite remote locations. So uh, there's an incident that happens in a, in a village uh, called uh, Rebval, uh, which is in Kabylie, Kabylie which is a, a mountainous Berber-speaking region mm-hmm. east of Algiers. And there starts to be what the authorities describe as an effervescence. This is the language that they Mm -hmm. use to describe this incident in which uh, the local Berber peasants basically start saying that the sultan is going to come and save them and then they're going to be able to kick out the French and then the land is going to come back to them. Um, And when the French authorities investigate this, according to them, they trace it back to this one character um, who was reading the newspaper out loud in a cafe um, and who also happens to be 
uh, a sort of lowly servant of the French administration. So usually the kinds of people that are operating as these mediators, um, because they have very specific skills, are also the same ones that are being used for the government. Mm. Um, because the kind of people that can read and write in French or in Arabic, uh, that's, that's often how they end up. That's the only kind of job you can get as an Algerian. I think it's interesting how these people play different roles in different, to different audiences. And because of this intermediariness, they, uh, in a sense, also be, just become both useful and dangerous. So welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir and I'm talking to Arthur Asaraf about the role of news in 19th century colonial Algeria. And I think what's interesting is this concept of news itself. Uh, we often, you know, today we think, we don't really think about the concept. We just... Uh, use it as a shorthand for information, but there's all sorts of different words we can use uh, for communication, whether knowledge, information, news. You know, why why did you pick this category of news, and can we can we unpack it a little bit? Yeah, um, I came to this concept kind of gradually through my research. It wasn't originally something that I was planning to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the easiest way of distinguishing news from other kinds of information is that it's particularly time sensitive. Mm. So news has to be, as the words in English suggest, new. Right. This is not necessarily the case in other languages, by the way. So in Arabic, the words for news don't particularly reference any kind of um, time chronological yeah. dimension. Yeah, but there's something interesting about that because it connects quite closely to to modernity. Right mm-hmm. to the idea that things are happening faster, that there is a rupture in time with previous things, um, and so news is inscribed in a particular kind of temporality. I use a very broad definition of news that it's really stories that people tell about recent events. Um, the problem that we have, I think, from our perspective as 21st century researchers, is that we often confuse news with certain kinds of media. Mm-hmm. So. I often get the question, oh, you work on newspapers. Newspapers are only one way in which news circulates. Mm -hmm. The good thing about a place like Algeria is that because there are all these different networks, you can see that that's not the only way in which it's going around. But there remains this idea that, that, that news is only news when it operates on it along a certain uh, media. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard, but really enriching to kind of get yourself out of that uh, thinking. So in this case, you know, if we're not mixing up, uh, if we're not associating news with just one sort of media, I mean, what what actually qualifies as news? I mean, what type of information can become news uh, and what what doesn't? Right. So the interesting thing about news is that it has to be a kind of information um, that is not direct, that you haven't lived yourself. You know, Mm. if I break my leg, it's not news because I know that I broke my leg and I lived through it. Um. And yeah, it also has to be relevant. So for instance, um, if, if a man in China that I've never met breaks his leg, that's also not news to me. It's not interesting, right? So it has to fulfill a particular intermediate space um, about uh, some, an event that, that I don't know about yet, and it has to be communicated to me via some kind of uh, media, and yet that I'm going to find relevant. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is that this uh, allows us, I think, a slightly different way into notions of community and of belonging and of identification because 
looking at what people mm. find interesting and relevant as news uh, really maps um, what they find uh, close and what they find far, what social groups they find relevant, what social groups they find irrelevant to their mm -hmm. daily purposes. And this allows us to look into these processes in a way that is sort of more specific and that looks more into media and the way in which people connect and not using slightly um, uh, more discursive or vaguer notions of identity that are harder to pin down. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's jump into this. I mean, for, let's say, the indigenous inhabitants of Algeria, specifically the Muslims, what qualified as news for them? So the fact that we use this word Muslim is in a way kind of the key into the, mm -hmm. the problem. Um, what we tend to see is a, a very great amount of interest and sensitivity to news coming from the Islamic world or to news understood as involving Muslims. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, the, this kind of effervescence that I was talking about in Rival, there are a lot of incidents like this. Um, one example that, that, um, that I could give is there are a number of riots in cinemas in Algeria in the early 20th century once newsreels start coming about. And they usually involve um, like uh, news depictions of populations understood um, by Algerians to be Muslim. Mm. So for instance, during the First World War, uh, there are all these reports of problems with um, uh, Muslims in Algeria applauding depictions of Armenians being massacred uh, in the Ottoman <laughs> Empire, and the authorities find this extremely troubling. But basically the mapping that's going on is uh, people in Algeria saying, look, there is a conflict between uh, Muslims and Christians there, mm -hmm. and the Muslims are winning. This means that we could win here. So there's a kind of parallel mapping Mm. of the situation. I think that operates particularly well with the Muslim category as opposed to other ones. There are also other categories as play. You could identify with other col colonized people in general, right. for instance. In my period in the late 19th and early 20th, 20th century, that actually doesn't happen as much as you might think. I think mm -hmm. that's a slightly later development. So it tends to be primarily along this, uh, this religious category. Now there's a reason for this that doesn't just have to do with... Um, a broader sense that Muslims only care about other Muslims, but it has to do with a very specific uh, social situation that's happening under French colonialism in Algeria. Effectively, in Algeria, the legal definition of who is a native and does not have rights as a citizen uh, is who is a Muslim, right? Algeria mm. is a part of France. Uh, certain people within Algeria have full rights as French citizens and are allowed to vote. And those people are the ones who are not Muslim. So whether mm -hmm. they're European settlers of Christian origin or Jews uh, from Algeria. Um, so the only people uh, after Jews are naturalized in 1870 who cannot participate fully uh, in the French Republic are mm -hmm. Uh, those legally defined as Muslims. I say legally defined because this is not a measure of their religious practice. Right. For instance, and this is a famous and kind of a slightly amusing case, um, some Muslims converted to Catholicism, but were still legally Muslims, right? Mm. You couldn't just convert out of this particular problem. I like what you were saying before, that the choice of news that you choose to identify with, that you choose to listen to and to decide that is, is worthy of your attention, is a way of getting around this problem of identity rather than, you know, trying to, predetermine a sort of set identity of Islam, you know, that you have to adhere to certain types of beliefs and so forth like that, and then look at places where it contradicts or doesn't contradict. What you have here, and I think in this nice case with news, is that, you know, people are, in a sense, deciding uh, through their the choice of information that they pay attention to, to take on this role of being Muslim. And I want to kind of understand, how does that conception, your conception of identity through news choice uh, interact with the identity of Muslim created like by the colonial authorities? 
the word Muslim, I think, as I use it in the colonial Algerian context, is a mm-hmm. specific word, right? It's not, I'm not talking about Muslims in other places of the right. world. Um, uh, sometimes people use it in brackets. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't use it in brackets, but that's one way of kind of distancing yourself. But it is a very specific category. And I'm looking at the construction of that category, both... Uh, from the colonial authorities and from the people themselves. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing about the word Muslim is that this is not just um, a word that is being imposed uh, by authorities. Very few people might describe themselves as native, for instance, or in French, indigène. But a lot of people in Algeria at the time are very happy to describe themselves as Muslim. That might even be their primary category of identification. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this identification um, has a a longer pre-colonial history, Mm -hmm. but it's being reinforced through processes uh, under colonization. What's happening in Algeria is that Algeria is considered to be a part of France. Mm -hmm. Certain people within that space uh, have French citizenship and can vote in elections and, and uh, have full rights, um, but those people are the people who are legally defined as being not Muslim, so mm-hmm. either Europeans of Christian descent or Jews, um, and those who are legally defined as Muslims uh, uh, are not citizens, they are subjects, and they cannot participate um, with full civil rights. So that is a category that is being imposed um, by the French state, which has its own definition of how Muslim works, but it's also a category that people in Algeria use to describe themselves. Right, um, And in particular... They use it to, to describe themselves uh, in a wider geopolitical space that goes beyond Algeria. And that's why uh, looking at how they understand news from the Muslim world is so interesting because this category, which within Algeria is one that means dispossession. Mm-hmm. It's one that means uh, losing your land, uh, not being a citizen, um, being taxed but not being able to vote or all of these different things, um, when you apply it to a wider world, it looks so much more exciting because it means, look, there are other Muslims in other places in the world. They're in Nigeria, they're in Java, they're in India, they're, they're in the Ottoman Empire. And so we are not alone. Um, and so if there are successes in these places, it means that we too might be able to reverse our situation here. So what events were they actually looking at? What events inspired them? So it depends, obviously, on the period, uh, the particular moment you're looking at. Um, They're very interested uh, in events in the Ottoman Empire. Um, Algeria was, uh, as as most of you probably know, um, uh, a regency of, of the Ottoman Empire for a long time. Obviously, at the time, it had a slightly weird relationship with central power uh, in Istanbul. But under the colonial period, we do see a lot of uh, interest in developments mm-hmm. in the Ottoman Empire because it is understood to be the only strong Muslim power left. Um, so I you don't really see very much interest, say, in in Persia um, or in other places or in Afghanistan. Surprisingly, not as much interest as you might think in Morocco, which Mm -hmm. does remain independent until 1912 um, and which is much closer to Algeria um, for a number of reasons. So there's a lot of interest in uh, the success of the Ottoman of the Ottomans, and this endures under the Turkish Republic. So one of the interesting things about the way in which Algerians read the news of uh, the Turkish independence war is that they see uh, Mustafa Kemal as uh, a champion of Islam. Um, And the way in which they talk about him even after his death is really as a defender of Islam. And so you might wonder, well, what do they mean Mm -hmm. by this? Because it seems sort of contradictory. Right. He's seen as, you know, he is this, the father of secular Turkey, the person that closed down the madrasas and everything else. Absolutely. And the thing is, they're aware of this, right? They're, yeah. not, they're not naive. So when you read uh, articles in, in the Algerian press at the time, they say, yes, well, he was, you know, slightly uh, obsessed with uh, some matters of, say, uh, 
dress or clothing. That's how they talk <laughs> about it. And that was a bit unhelpful. Um, and he shouldn't have done that. But he's still a great man. He's still a great man because he fought for Islam. Now, what do they mean by this? And it's actually a very specific meaning. What they mean is that he had a big army and he defeated some Europeans. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of Islam as a kind of uh, category, a geopolitical category, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that involves military power. And that's what they're really interested in. Um, and this comes from, even from Salafis, right? It's mm -hmm. not that these people are yeah. not religious. It's just that practice or theology is not the only thing that's being involved and the ability to point to other powers and to say look they are muslim and they are strong on the world stage is extremely important mm -hmm. so i think this is a fascinating glimpse at all the different ways of claiming uh muslimness in the world and not just as a sort of uh, generic sort of religiosity or practice and it kind of brings to mind Looking at other groups in Algeria, obviously one quickly thinks of the Jews of Algeria who, even though they were uh, French citizens starting in 1870, still kind of occupied a sort of intermediary role. And so I'd be interested to see, does their intermediary role come across in their choice of news and what they, yeah, what they deemed worthy of attention? First of all, I have to confess that I know less about this. Um, but from the things that I know, I mean, first of all, it's interesting that you often find Jews um, as these intermediaries in the cafes sometimes because despite legally being French citizens, most of them um, are Arabic-speaking um, and might enjoy, particularly for men, um, social relations um, with, with Muslims in the same area in quite a close way, so they can kind of easily move between uh, different networks in a way that some other people can't. In terms of what choices they, they tend to focus on, um, I'm not quite so certain. One thing that I do notice um, later in the 1930s is obviously an extreme amount of concern for the development of anti-Semitism in Europe um, and for uh, the condition in Mandate Palestine at the time. This becomes interesting um, in Algeria as Palestine... The, the, the increasing levels of violence in Palestine between uh, incoming Jewish immigrants um, and the local Arab population uh, comes to be seen as a mirror image of what is happening in mm. Algeria um, because there is a sort of similar cast of people, you know, Europeans, Muslims, Jews, settlers, mm -hmm. natives, uh, Arabs, Mediterranean space, all of these things. Um, so people in Algeria... Um, use uh, the events in Palestine to make political points in Algeria about the possibilities or not of coexistence, about the possibilities or not, uh, about, about what imperialism means. I mean, all sorts of questions kind right. of come up through, uh, through observing this, this place. We'll take a quick musical break, and we'll be back in a bit. Welcome back. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm talking to Arthur Asaraf about news, identity, Islam in colonial Algeria in the 19th and 20th centuries. So we've had a fascinating talk so far about ways of claiming Muslimness and often as a sort of geopolitical image in the 19th and 20th century 
but this wasn't, it wasn't just a preoccupation of the Muslim inhabitants themselves, right? One often thinks of all these conspiracies of pan-Islamism, which preoccupied colonial officials from France to Russia to Great Britain throughout the world in the 19th and 20th century. Did these French colonial officials interpret uh, local Muslims' attachment to the Ottoman Empire as a sort of pan-Islamism? How does pan-Islamism fit into this story? Uh, absolutely. They, they, they are extremely concerned with this. It is like a, a huge uh, theme in all the reports and in all the sources that you read. I mean, people often use the term paranoia to talk about this. Personally, mm. I don't really like using that word, but it is a huge anxiety and concern by French authorities, um, the kinds of connections that Muslims have. So there is a, a temptation to think of these connections with the rest of the Muslim world as only being a product of French official anxiety. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not really there. They're just imagining things. Right, it's just a representation. Yeah, yeah so that's a bit easy. But what is true is that certainly the, the official kind of panic about these things does shape uh, things a lot. So the French are not only concerned um, like the, the, the British, the Dutch, the Russians, stuff like that, but they produce a lot of literature on this, mm. the travels. Um, so, for instance, uh, French uh, sort of social scientific production on Sufi orders in Algeria, which is often produced by the administrators themselves, um, and which comes out of a big concern that these, these Sufi orders have um, connections beyond Algeria that cannot be controlled, uh, comes to be very influential and read in a number of other colonial administrations. What is particularly concerning, basically, mm -hmm. for authorities is that this Muslim category uh, extends to territories which they do not control, mm. right? So uh, what Algerians... Um, are both native, Antigen, mm -hmm. so tied to their local identity, rooted in the soil. Uh, but they are also Muslim, which means that they are connected to other places. So this leads to a number of concerns, um, which are common to a lot of other uh, colonial spaces. So for instance, concern with the Hajj, um, which the French are also very worried about, and which we have very good research on, and a number of um, of other, any anywhere where Algerian Muslims might meet with other Muslims becomes very uh, stressful. So what's interesting about these spaces of um, communication is that they're not, they don't conceive of Muslims communicating through the telegram or through newspapers or um, they, they kind of see some sort of dark network of Muslim communication that doesn't, that's not modern in a sense. Absolutely. So the contradiction that occurs is that the French authorities cannot conceive of their their networks, the ones that they have painstakingly <laughs> created to control Algeria, as being the problem. Right. So they constantly assume that there is another network, a sort of parallel, dark, obscure thing going on in which Muslims are communicating. Usually this happens in Mecca. Sometimes it happens elsewhere. There are all sorts of fun theories as to where the Muslims are secretly meeting and plotting. But the point is, and if you look at it uh, more closely, it usually is through these new colonial networks that these things are happening. So mm -hmm. uh, as we were discussing earlier, via the telegraph, you find out that something is happening in the Ottoman Empire and this gets you excited. Um, or you might be meeting other people in Paris or you might be doing all sorts of other things. But the French remain uh, extremely convinced that this is happening through some other network. Um, and this leads to some quite interesting uh, images. So for instance, uh, the... French expression uh, to talk about uh, the game telephone, you know, when you mm. whisper a word to someone and then it gets deformed, uh, to this day is téléphone arabe, Arab telephone. Mm. This comes out of a very widespread colonial stereotype that um, Algerians had a kind of secret network, network to spread information across to each other, this sort of imaginary Arab telephone. 
Um, and that this sort of was incredibly efficient and meant that uh, the information could spread very fast, but that it was also, of course, uh, full of duplicity and lies and, and uh, deformation because Arabs cannot possibly be trusted to spread information accurately in the colonial imaginary. So I think so far what, what we've sketched out here is kind of multiple intersecting networks of commun- communication and different people, different actors' understandings of those uh, networks. Uh, so for instance, the example you just gave, this that the French colonial officials couldn't even conceive that their Muslim subjects were using the very same networks of communications that enabled the empire to go here, uh, gives us a very different conception of the flow of knowledge of communication across the world. You know, often, I think you bring this out very well in your research, often we think of uh, these new technologies of communication, whether the printing press or the telegraph or television or whatever you want, as just kind of creating, just flowing evenly across the world. But you're giving a very different picture. Absolutely. Um, And thank you for bringing that out. Um, One thing that's interesting about looking at this this particular colonial context is that, as as you said, you get increasing amounts of flows of information. You Mm -hmm. get, you know, it happens faster. There's more of it. Um, and that does not diminish tension, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, it makes uh, things more polarized. And so I like to talk about friction mm-hmm. um, that's, instead of um, flows. Mm-hmm. You know, flows is smooth, everything moves, but there's a lot of friction that happens when um, places get brought closer together. And I like to talk about mediation rather than connection because connection, you know, you just have a point A and a point B, but actually the process in the middle uh, changes things uh, a lot. So what we're seeing here is that all of these uh, accelerations of information build new geographies, basically. Right. Uh, and those geographies are very unexpected, and they are no less uh, flat or violent than the ones that preceded them. Um, they're just uh, different, and they get reshaped. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, they might also reactivate much older ones. So this connection of Algerians with the Ottoman Empire is an interesting one. Right. That it kind of like rebuilds this link with the Sultan, which was never that important when <laughs> the Sultan was actually ruling Algeria in the first place. And, in, and it also makes us reconceive, let's say, the nature of political belonging, uh, we've talked about this in our other conversations, but you know, often there's this notion that new types of uh, media, especially print, create something like the nation state, and this is kind of very clear in Benedict Anderson's work. Uh, but what you have here is kind of new media occurring and actually polarizing the community, creating very um, divisive and antagonistic polities or a polity that is kind of in a sense at war with itself. My problem with with, uh, Benedict Anderson's imagined communities is that it it lacks a kind of theory of media and how it might work. What you see in Algeria is not people um, printing a newspaper and then a community sort of magically forming around it, but you Mm -hmm. see completely opposite things happening. First of all, you sometimes see uh, people printing newspapers and then nobody reading them. Mm -hmm. Um, So the French authorities constantly print newspapers for... Algerian Muslims hoping that they're going to be able to control them and then just nobody pays attention because they're boring. 
And on the other hand, you get, as in the case of the Telegraph or of some French newspapers in Algeria, the same newspaper being split to two completely different ends. So depending mm-hmm. on whether the person reading it is a, a French settler um, reading it in uh, his living room over breakfast or whether it's being read in a cafe uh, in, in Arabic or in Thomas by someone else, the same news comes to have a completely different level of interpretation um, and shapes two radically different communities. Mm-hmm. So it contributes to building this, this really a polarized colonial society within the same space, um, which, yeah, I think really complicates our notions of um, of how people use uh, different forms of media to create political communities. Mm. So to ask the converse question, is it possible to have a perfect polity? And would that mean... <laughs> I mean, we're looking at this case of a failure of communication in a sense, or let's say communication that is radically divergent and different across its landscape, uh, across the land, uh, geographical landscape, right? Are we assuming that, you know, in a democracy that there is kind of some sort of ideal, perfect communication between the different peoples? Uh, no, of course not. Uh, there, there are always uh, inequalities. There are always uh, spaces of rupture. There are always places. So these can take many different kinds. I mean, um, Often it's class or access to a certain right. level of education. Um, one of the most important ones in Algeria actually is not the colonial factor, but gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so news is seen as something um, that belongs to men. Uh, men go outside. Men are the ones who get interested in external and far away and distant things. Women are only meant to be concerned with the domestic space. And this is true both in European and in Muslim spaces. Women are not meant to talk about politics. Yeah. Um, and they don't go to the cafes, right, where these things are discussed, for instance. So the, these, yeah, and in, in, even in like a sublime democratic society, wherever that may be, um, these fractures exist. The problem is I think they're harder to see. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they might not be as easy to identify. Um, so in a way, the, the colonial uh, case is just a really good one because it starts to kind of fracture that. Um, it's a good tool because it's so obvious, it's so glaring, that then you really have to reconsider right. um, all of the other things that you think you know in your daily environment now if you live, um, say, you know, in France or in Britain or in the United States. Right. And I mean, I think it shows how, you know, often we want to use the framework, let's say, settler colonialism to isolate these cases like Algeria or Israel from kind of the proper nation state or whatever, what what have you. Uh, but I think it shows how we can, by analyzing Algeria, we can get a much better sense of our society today and, you know, uh, the formation of nation states and societies across the 19th and 20th century. Right. And for instance, um, one, one kind of contemporary example that I can think of is that in France nowadays, um, news of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is extremely uh, contentious and difficult. So, like, there's authorities in France now fear that news of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is going to create riots in France. Mm. Um, and there's a really weird kind of way of thinking about this, that it means that the problems are not coming from within French society, but they're coming <laughs> from somewhere else, right? That it's the news creating this, which is, you know, probably not what's going on. Right. Uh, but it remains absolute. I mean, it, it is a very much a concern that is happening now for slightly different reasons. I'm not establishing any sort of easy parallels between... Uh, my historical context in in North Africa and this one, but mm-hmm. absolutely, these are these are issues that uh, that uh, are, are common to a number of different spaces and, and historical periods. And we still, th- I mean, we still discuss them today. For instance, the whole discourse around Muslim radicalization—you know—that they watched a YouTube video and then therefore they were transformed 
that they went to a, mo- a mosque and therefore the conversation there transformed the good Muslim into the bad Muslim in America or what have you. Completely. So you blame the media or a new fo- usually a new form of media because that's the most suspicious right. one. So something on the internet, uh, Twitter or uh, yeah, YouTube or whatever it is. And that's what's really causing the radicalization, um, which is a very limited understanding of how people come to form um, their political decisions Obviously, drawing on this information, it's important. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to do this if you didn't have this information, but that's not the only reason why you're doing it. Right. Okay. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, there's so many more avenues to explore here. Unfortunately, we're out of time, uh, but I encourage you to find out more about Arthur's fascinating work. Uh, you can go to our website where he has kindly provided a bibliography of related readings. Uh, you can go to our Facebook group, and you can find other listeners uh, and engage engage with them. And I encourage you also to check out the other episodes that are History of Science series where we've really kind of been slowly exploring uh, these new approaches and new insights to the history of communication, whether that's with manuscripts or Catherine Schwartz' excellent work on the history of print in 19th century Egypt. Um, and we hope you tune in again very soon. Thank you. Thank you.